Billed upon its release in 1971 as a psychological thriller, Clute is a little bit more than that, and a little bit less. The premise has a business executive and husband, Tom Grunemann, vanish from his affluent home in Tuscarora, Pennsylvania. After the police fail to find any leads, his friend and neighbour, John Clute, assigns himself the role of detective. Clute's investigation leads him to a part-time model, part-time escort, Bree Daniels, working in Manhattan. There he discovers that Daniels, the victim of obscene letters and phone calls, is being stalked, possibly by Grunemann. All those generic elements account for the psychological thriller, and an intriguing one at that. What begins as a search for a missing man suggests that the missing man might be a psychopath. However, naming the film after the character of Clute suggests it is a little bit more than its self-assigned genre. It suggests a portrait and a character study. If the story had been solely a psychological thriller, it would have been given a generic title. Manhunter, Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct. Or, if it were a rom-com, Missing in Manhattan. But here's the thing. The character under study is not John Clute. It is Bree Daniels. Which means that the filmmakers have twice removed its study from the central premise. Firstly, from the missing man, then from the protagonist, before finally settling on the tenuous lead in the mystery. Which is not necessarily a flaw, because it immediately allows the filmmakers to avoid yet another rigidly formulaic thriller, and instead examine malleable themes such as sex, sexuality, gender, identity, and social hierarchy. And those topics come very sharply into focus when Brie Daniels visits her psychiatrist. What's the difference between going out on a call as a model or as an actress or as a call girl? You're successful as a call girl. You're not because successful. when you're a call girl, you control it. That's why. Because someone wants you. Not me. I mean, there are some Johns that I have regularly that want me, and that's terrific. But they want a woman. And I know I'm good. And. I arrive at their hotel or their apartment, and they're usually nervous, which is fine because I'm not. I know what I'm doing. And for an hour, for an hour, I'm the best actress in the world and the best fuck in the world. To appreciate how diligent everyone was in the making of the film, producer-director Alan J. Pakula, the writers Andy and Dave Lewis, and lead actors Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland. Consider how different it could have been in the hands of other filmmakers. And what is your name, miss? What do you want it to be? Don't play with me, young lady. Vivian. Thank you. Vivian. Well, Miss Vivian, things that go on in other hotels don't happen at the Regent Beverly Wilshire. Now, Mr. Lewis, however, is a very special customer, and we like to think of our special customers as friends. Now, as a customer, we would expect Mr. Lewis to sign in any additional guests, but as a friend, we're willing to overlook it. Now, I'm assuming that you're a... relative? Yes. I thought so. Then you must be his... niece? Originally called 3000, Pretty Woman started out as a dark fable about sex work in Los Angeles. Writer J.F. Lawton chose the city specifically because being America's entertainment capital, its dangerous promises of fame and fortune served his purpose of reflecting the society he saw as financially ruined and morally bankrupt. 
The 3,000 referred to the amount of money the pretty woman would charge for a weeks-long exclusive engagement. And the whole thing ended with her on a Greyhound bus heading to Disney World. As rancid an inversion of a magic kingdom, filled with objectified princesses, chivalric princes and happy ever afters that any film could ever want. When you wish upon a star Makes no difference who you are Anything your heart desires will come to you However difficult it is today to give an accurate depiction of the sex industry, even the term is unsettling, presenting human beings as automatons rolling off a production line and marketed as sex machines, it was even harder back in the 1970s. The adult audience at which the film was aimed had grown up watching classical Hollywood cinema, where all manner of euphemisms and simulations were presented to disguise the profession and shield the audience from its reality. So in westerns you had saloon singers, in detective stories you had cigarette girls, and in melodramas you had the nebulously named Fallen Woman. And let's not forget that melodramas were often derogatively referred to as weepies. So whether the woman was a sex worker or not, she was invariably depicted as a long-suffering and self-sacrificing victim. Which is another reason why Brie Daniels is such a departure. She is an escort by choice, and that completely upended the long-standing belief that a woman's sexuality was not hers to own. I, uh, I was just finishing up some work, marking up a few photographs. I used to be a photographer, Rita. Before I got into publishing. He knows you're a pimp, Frankie. He knows you were my pimp. Excuse me. Bree, why don't you wait outside? Like almost all screenplays, Clute underwent rewrites. And although in Andy and Dave Lewis's original script, Bree Daniels was in therapy, in the completed film, those scenes were improvised between Fonda and Vivian Nathan, who played the psychiatrist. In order to render those scenes believable, Fonda requested that they not be filmed until the very end of production, by which time she felt she would have grown into the character. All of which underlines the argument that Clute is less a thriller and more a study. To further help Fonda reach her understanding, Pakula made sure that Daniels' apartment was a real-life functional dwelling in which Fonda actually slept at night. For that, Pakula called in then-art director and future Oscar-winning production designer George Jenkins. The film marked the first of seven collaborations between the pair, and it was not only Jenkins' attention to the director's needs that earned him Pakula's respect. It was his ability to work with actors. In her preparation, Fonda recalled a fellow student of acting teacher Lee Strasberg, who, in the course of the classes, admitted that she had been an occasional companion to President John F. Kennedy. Fonda suggested that that detail be incorporated into her character, which accounts for the etching of JFK Daniels keeps by her dressing table. But here is something to admit. Without that knowledge, the presence of the Kennedy drawing is an ambiguous element. Is it supposed to suggest Daniels' political affiliation? Or is it about lost idealism? Or could it be an allusion to the then widely held theory that Kennedy was the victim of a CIA plot? Certainly, that last possibility would link into one of the film's other concerns. And that drives us back to the film being a little bit more a psychological thriller and a little bit less a character study. Look, I'm sorry. Uh, I've been leading everybody astray. It doesn't, uh, 
Yeah, okay, I get these feelings. But they're just feelings, that's just me. Well, I'm sure you'll find this amusing, but I'm afraid of the dark. Or, um, sometimes I get spooked, I think I see people, hear things. Or like I go out in the morning and I think somebody's been prying open my mailbox. Or if there's trash in front of my door, I think somebody's trying to freak me out. It doesn't, it's just nerves. I'm a nervous broad, it doesn't mean anything. Daniels is the focus of an obsessive, possibly homicidal stalker. In fact, both her stalker and Clute spy on her, follow her in the streets, and literally, as well as figuratively, look down upon her. Looking is very central to the film's concerns. Just consider the amount of time the film offers us views through windows, doors and long dark hallways. So much so that the theme is not so much looking as it is voyeurism. But the film does not stop there because both Clute and Daniel Stoker listen in on her conversations. Which means it is not so much voyeurism we are talking about as it is surveillance. Before exploring this further, consider this brief but important aside. Brie Daniels is an aspiring actress and model and frequently goes up for fashion shoots where everyone in the room is judging her solely on her appearance, which adds an unexpected layer to the thriller genre by neatly segueing into a commentary on gender and representation. Hi, can I see your, your eyes? Let, let me see your hair. Take your hair, your hat off. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Too pretty. Too pretty. Too pretty. She's, she's kind of exotic. Color. That's the the color. coloring is great. Yeah, I don't know. It's not quite it, though. No, not really. Hello. Can I see your hands? Mm. Thank you. So funny hands. Yeah. Back to the conspiracy thriller and the film's theme of surveillance. Remember, this was the early 1970s. In the previous decade, John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert had been assassinated, as had been Dr. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Then there was the emergence of the Black Panthers, the Weathermen and other underground groups, all fighting to loosen the control of what they saw as an increasingly oppressive Nixon administration. If McCarthyism was dead, J. Edgar Hoover was very much alive, and prying into people's private lives was more of a betrayal of the public's trust than it is today. Back in the late 60s and 70s, it came as a complete shock to the public that their elected government could spy on them. Surely intelligence organisations were supposed to spy on other countries. So perhaps Brie Daniels isn't just a part-time escort, as she is a cipher for the general public. The audience, who when the movie is over, will return to their homes, where, during their absence, some faceless agent, working for some faceless agency, has broken in, read their mail, tapped their phone, and planted cameras all over the house to monitor their every move. Don't be afraid. I'm going to sit you down on the bed. There's someone on the roof. Sit. Sit. Here are a number of reasons why the film works as a psychological thriller. One, Alan J. Pakula, who although having produced such highly revered works as To Kill a Mockingbird, Love with a Proper Stranger and Inside Daisy Clover, was directing only for the second time. However, he had already decided upon a very distinctive style of storytelling and had gathered around him cinematographer Gordon Willis, production designer George Jenkins, composer Michael Small and then later David Shire, with whom he fashioned a series of films that have since become known as the Paranoid Trilogy. Clute, 
the parallax view and all the president's men. And there are a few better examples of Pakula's style, or indeed a more obvious place to start, than Clute's opening scene. <laughs> After the Warner Brothers logo, the screen opens on an image of a small cassette recorder. We hear voices at a dinner party. We see a man at the head of the table laughing contentedly. A woman at the other end of the table smiling at him adoringly. Then a wide shot of the entire group, with everyone enjoying the meal. And throughout all this, although the dialogue is audible, nothing is discernible. A slow tracking shot brings us along the table, showing us in close-up on a long lens, some of the guests. Then the woman calls and the man raises his glass. Husband and wife, guests, a happy gathering. Are they aware they are being recorded? And then, an empty chair. The husband has disappeared. Now, once you've watched the entire film, go back and review that opening scene. And it is only then that you realise that Pakula has planted the stalker at the dinner party. The framing, the sound design, the editing, all work together for you to work with them to figure things out. Don't be afraid. I'm not. Would you like me to hold you? <laughs> I'm just trying to figure you out. <laughs> I mean, is it not many people have been very successful at that? That's all right. I'll figure you out before the evening is over. Looking at Clute today, it is tempting to say that they don't make them like they used to. But for me, that is a false premise. Because if we were to apply that notion to its logical conclusion, they didn't make the likes of Clute in the 1950s any more than they made the likes of Blue Velvet in the 1940s, or The Wolf of Wall Street in the 1930s. And for many reasons. Because of technology for one, because of politics for another, and most emphatically, because of gender. You are not allowed to govern your own bodies like the way this groundbreaking film said you should. <laughs>